Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Hi, I'm Anand Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm an actor-writer with an interest in the intimate. We want to fill the gap in the nation's sex and relationship education through interviewing guests on how we relate to our bodies when it comes to sex, identity, and of course, pleasure. Welcome to Season 4. We're kicking off with a mini-series on parenthood. I'm pregnant with twins and finding mainstream narratives about pregnancy and motherhood pretty narrow. Where are the stories about trans people giving birth? What about the choice to be child-free? And what exactly does a doula do? I want to open up the stories we hear at these pivotal points in our lives. As a GP, I have rather too short conversations with people at these defining moments. This was an opportunity to discuss the decision to get pregnant, to try again after the miscarriage, to challenge how the society you brought your child into would treat them and you, and have a deeper look at the way our health system handles pregnancy and motherhood as a whole. This is by no means an exhaustive set of interviews, but we hope it's a bold start. Today we welcome award-winning Guardian journalist, writer and full-time single dad, Freddie McConnell. Freddie was the subject of documentary sensation Seahorse, the dad who gave birth, which follows his experience of becoming a father as a trans man. Freddie speaks to us about the empowering experience of realising he was trans, of coming off testosterone to become pregnant, and how being trans is not necessarily a transition, but a state of being. We also discuss the misinformation given to trans men about the effects of testosterone therapy on their fertility. I found this interview particularly fascinating given my work with testosterone deficiency syndrome in cis men. It was a really important reminder that our assumptions in the medical profession need to be challenged when it comes to treating trans bodies. For me, when I look back, I've always just been me. And I know lots of trans people, you know, once you transition, you prefer to talk about yourself historically using correct pronouns, even if you didn't transition until you were an adult. And that for me just feels like, you know, why would anyone not do that? And it's kind of a little bit problematic, but people who know me almost like to say that themselves. They like pointing out, they see pictures of me and they're like, wow, yeah, he's just like such a little boy. And it's a little bit performative and a little bit like saying, I would have never known you were trans, which is always a weird thing to say, <laughs> but... I can see what they mean because I've always felt the way I feel. I just didn't realise that not everyone felt so uncomfortable in themselves uh, until I realised I was trans. There was a, a wonderful moment in the Camp Order video where you are showing off a new outfit. <laughs> and the new outfit is basically, a, you, you basically look like a footballer, a, a sort of miniature footballer. And yeah. you are wearing sort of blue shorts and a dark blue hoodie. 
next to your sister, who is, I suppose, dressed typically feminine manner, mm. I, I suppose. And I thought that sort of really struck me. And your, and your hairstyles were so mm. different. Was that a conscious choice on your part that you wanted your hair to be different or shorter or... I mean, yes, I definitely had a sense of my own style and I was given a lot of freedom, to, except where, I mean, haircuts were a little bit controversial. And again, it, I had this, like, gut reaction, almost like sensory reaction to not having the right kind of hairstyle. And, we, and there was this idea of compromising and having a bob, which I was so upset about. I can remember that feeling of being so upset about and not really being able to understand why and this just felt so unfair and so confusing and I remember when my auntie asked me to be a bridesmaid at her wedding when I was probably about 13 and just breaking down crying in the changing room in a dress and not being able to explain to my mum why I was so upset and even not understanding myself why I was so upset but you know and I remember like getting a Man United shirt when I was about seven and putting it on over my jumper so my jumper sleeve stuck out underneath it and just being like mm, I am the coolest person who has ever lived <laughs> like <laughs> I really distinctly remember feeling that but and uh, you know and those are lovely memories but at the same time it's always a bit tricky because I don't want to be seen to suggest that that is a sign of being trans necessarily obviously there's lots of little girls that our tomboys um so i think it's always important to say that you know within all that there was this deeper stuff going on that actually was much more indicative of there being a problem rather than the outward appearance had you always felt from a young age that you knew you wanted to be a parent as soon as i got old enough to be conscious of that sort of thing i always saw children in my future like i didn't really have a plan and I didn't imagine myself with a partner or I certainly didn't imagine myself being pregnant but yeah I always really loved the idea of being surrounded by like a brood of dirty messy kids and I used to like a, researching schools and type, different forms of education I always really enjoyed the company of kids I used to babysit a lot and I always understood the idea that like a child is a sort of fully formed person who you should try to have a conversation with and not speak down to so yeah I've just been reading Philippa Perry's uh, book, actually. I don't know if, if you... Did you read it, the book you wish your parents read? My sister's read it. Read. She recommended it, yeah. There's a brilliant chapter all, all about that, actually, about people often patronise kids, don't they, and treat their emotions as if they're superficial and fleeting and flighty. But actually, you've got to treat them with real respect, like they're mm. little adults, actually, to, and take it really sincerely, and they really respond yeah, to that. definitely. And, and so obviously you've not sort of visualised how you're going to achieve parenthood, but that seems to be in your future, or at least it seems to be dreamed in your future. Mm -hmm. um, did it feel to you that you would be a direct parent rather than adopting, for example? I mean, when I was growing up, the idea of myself in the future was always quite a nebulous thing. I couldn't really ever imagine myself as an adult. I think in a way there was some sense of imagining children actually being a way of trying to sort of soothe myself and project myself, you know, if I could have been born differently. So, you know, there was a, it was, it was complicated, but so no, I didn't really imagine myself in these scenarios as weird as that sounds. And I've heard other trans folk talk about this. It's just like, you just really can't imagine yourself because you just, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to explain. So no, I didn't really think about any of those details other than just, I, I guess I sort of like the idea of becoming a parent in all sorts of ways. I didn't, ha like I said, I didn't really have any firm plans. There was a scene in the film where you get this uh, large suitcase um, full of mm. old clothes. 
And you take out this great big school shirt of yours. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that um, you've you've cut out the first name of at, at you know, a relatively young age that didn't seem to fit what you wanted or who you felt you were. Is that right? Yeah, I, I hated my name. <laughs> For some reason, my parents decided to get my full name printed on those name labels that people have in their school uniform. And I was just livid. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I sort of went through various different... I actually changed my name to a different version of my old name officially before changing it to Freddie. So I was definitely experimenting with identity and trying on different things, mm. which again, a lot of people do. You try on different names and see what feels right because it's a pretty intense experience. And was the changing of the name sort of coinciding with starting to understand um, that you may be trans? No, it was before that, actually. Yeah, it was definitely before I watched the sort of first YouTube pirated documentary that was my first introduction to the idea to like um, a young trans man as opposed to the stereotypical representations of you know mostly trans women in situations where they're being ridiculed or things that I just couldn't relate to I was using slightly different names and experimenting with my presentation my whole life really you know I, I insisted on being referred to as different quote-unquote male names when I was as young as three or four and then obviously you get older and you see this documentary. What, I mean, how did it feel watching that YouTube documentary? It was totally earth-shattering for me to see this young boy who's American. It's hard to describe, I guess, but something I remember clearly was like after watching that programme, being in this like euphoric state for about two weeks, where I could not think about anything else other than what I'd discovered and how exciting it was and how excited I was to share it with other people in my family this feeling of like, oh my God, they're just going to be so excited like I am. It's going to make, it makes so much sense. I'm just, I remember like being, it was at university. So I remember being in the university gym and like being on the treadmill and just obsessively like rehearsing conversations that I would have. And then being in a class that was on, oh, like ancient Iraqi poetry or something, which is obviously quite boring, <laughs> but you know, on top of it being hard to follow anyway, I was just not there. <laughs> I just remember looking around just being like, you guys don't know what I know. Like, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> and, it's and it's interesting in your mind that you're rehearsing these conversations. You're, you're mm. feeling that your, your family hopefully will finally get, I imagine, you or the way that you've been feeling and, and, and be as positive a hope about it as you, you will. H how did you share that with them? I think before I shared anything with anyone, I went through different stages of coming down off that euphoria and actually having a realisation that oh, maybe this isn't going to be received well, or you know, because then I, would, I was researching more, reading more, watching more on YouTube and coming across people who were having a hard time and it not being presented in as a purely positive way. I told one of my flatmates first, she was really cool, and then I told my mum and we had a chat on her bed and I remember... I remember it not really landing in the way that I wanted it to, in my sense of, like, you know, doesn't it make so much sense? And she was just like, no, <laughs> what on earth is that, you know, you're just my perfect child. You know, how could anything be wrong? And then especially when people's minds immediately go to the medical side of things. And she wasn't really what I was thinking about at all although in those early days. But then, then that was just really scary for her. So that was a long process. How long uh, did it take you to get from those sorts of conversations to start thinking about taking a more medicalised route? It's not easy to access information about transition in the UK. 
I didn't know what it would entail until I went to my GP and spoke to them. And I mean, this is close to 10 years ago now. And back then it was, there was always waiting times. It's always been a struggle to get referred and, and you have to wait. You know, I waited two years really, not for my first appointment, but I think to be prescribed testosterone Yeah, two or three years. And now you have to wait that long just to have your first appointment. Uh, And in some places, because of coronavirus, you know, obviously one understands that resources have had to be redirected. But there are gender clinics that serve entire regions of the UK. So you might have one clinic for an area that's got a population of like upwards of five million people. And those clinics have just shut down. (laughs) So I just can't imagine how awful that must be. Yeah, and the, and, the, and the mental health problems associated with that length of dysphoria must be mm. really, really just terrifying. Yeah, it, I think the system is not fit for purpose, hasn't been for a long time and is now pretty much falling over before our eyes. And hopefully there is this idea to get rid of gender clinics and to ask GPs to have more of a frontline role in providing that mm. health care. Because actually it's not particularly specialist, it's, it's not particularly complicated as long as we don't pathologise transness. You don't need this whole separate thing necessarily. That's how it's dealt with in Australia, New Zealand, like all sorts of other places, Canada. Um, so, so yeah, as long as we can like pilot that idea sooner rather than later, I think there is hope. But yeah, right now it's really hard. I mean, fingers crossed. I mean, these are the sort of conversations that um, I've certainly been involved in in the last few months. Um, mm-hmm. It's just part of, I'm a trustee of a sort of LGBT plus charity. And they're trying to work out how do we support our young people now? They've got to wait two to three years to a 15 year old. Two to three years is, is feels like a lifetime. Yeah. And actually feeling that distress for that period of time has such a high risk of self-harm and suicide rates that actually how can we get this help sooner? So you're, you're, as you're saying, they're looking to see how much needs to be done in secondary care and how much could actually be brought closer to home mm-hmm. um, into primary care. So fingers crossed that mm-hmm. will improve in the future and actually will improve. Do you have any other members of the trans community around you at all at that stage when you were starting to have those initial conversations with doctors about getting testosterone? I was very much engaged with online community at that point and relying on online community and that kind of suits me because I'm an introvert and I probably wouldn't have been able to throw myself into real life interactions even if they'd been on my doorstep I did go to one amazing youth group in Scotland because I was at university up there very very early on and even that was quite overwhelming but but very sweet and welcoming um that's a that's a good memory I have and then not right at the beginning of transition, but sort of soon afterwards, I moved to London and, and started going out to friendly places like the RVT and their super inclusive night bar, whatever, every Tuesday. And that was like a kind of place I felt like I could venture to alone. So that was really lovely. But um, no, yeah, it was mostly online and still is, to be honest, because <laughs> now I live by the sea and it's, you know, deals pretty queer, but it's like all old gay white men not necessarily your demographic (laughs) not really although i think they'd like to think i think they like having me around (laughs) it's a new effect your your botox for them yeah lovely um i just think about um because one of my special interests is testosterone therapy right it's a clinic for for cis men Mm -hmm. however i was fascinated you know we get cis men presenting with testosterone deficiency syndromes Mm -hmm. of fatigue or not feeling quite themselves lack of focus libido issues erectile dysfunction but that's not quite what we're looking at here i mean Mm. and what was fascinating to me is about when you had that first injection of testosterone how that made you feel Mm. and then how long it took for for things to change when i started tea it was a relief and it was exciting but it was also quite scary and nerve-wracking first shot i didn't feel anything 
but then I suppose because I'm, yeah, I was extremely alert to changes that maybe within a month or so I felt my throat getting scratchy and you kind of feel, you feel like the texture of your skin changes. You notice your hair getting a bit thicker in places. You smell different in various ways. Um, it's all very subtle. No one else notices for ages. And then... How do you smell <laughs> different? You just you just do. Like, I don't know how to... You know, your sweat, all, you know, all sorts of ways yeah. you smell different. And And then before you know it, for me, and I've heard other people describe this, you just suddenly start getting red as male really quite early on. And like, you might not feel like anything's really changed and you might be frustrated and impatient, but there's like a, a switch. And, I th- and I've read about how human beings tend to default to male, you know, which is like nothing new there. Um, and then they'll look for signs that you're not male necessarily. So, and, and your voice plays a huge role. So yeah, uh, there was something that changed in the quality of my face and my maybe fat distribution. And I think also the way I was holding myself, my increasing confidence, where it was just like, yeah, suddenly that was it. And it felt so good. And it was a hugely affirming moment. But it's interesting hearing you talk about cis men and the symptoms of low T, because, you know, my experience of coming off testosterone when I did so to have my kid felt very similar to what I've read about symptoms of low T in cis men. When you came off T in the documentary Mm. and that very internal emotional experience started to happen, it was hugely surprising to me. I'd never heard of it spoken of in that way, um, of this softening and emotional changes as well. Specifically the part about that you wanted to share your feelings and you wanted to talk about your emotions. That hadn't been so much the case on testosterone therapy. I'd never heard people talk about their experience of coming off tea, you know, apart from a few, by that point, other trans men that had done so to have their babies. And it, it literally every single one of us talks about it differently. <laughs> so that's something that's really important to say. There's no common thread here. You know, I, when I started tea, definitely found the quality of my emotions was different and I found it harder to cry, like almost like on a physiological level, it felt like. But I know lots of trans guys who have not experienced that. I think it's as much to do with your genetics and all sorts of things about your body and one's brain that are unique to each person. But when I stopped tea, it wasn't that I want. Yeah, I remember in documentary I say I, I want to talk about my feelings more. I felt like my vocabulary expanded. It was it was really odd. That's something that I have experienced like both ways. Is I just feel like I have access to a greater spectrum of words to describe the different shades of emotion. It's weird though because it's really word focused for me. You know, it's not that I'm not emotional with either form of hormone dominating my system it's just yeah my access to words feels different <laughs> no, no that's that's really fascinating that's, i'd never yeah. heard it expressed like that so obviously you've started tea therapy and it's having a positive effect i mean at the beginning of your film you're in the gym um you're you're sort of sculpting your body and, and sort of at what point before you started tea therapy were you told anything about your likely fertility Yes, I mean, I mean, it definitely came up, you know, when you go to a gender clinic, well, I had several appointments before actually being prescribed testosterone. And fertility was definitely mentioned, but not in great detail. More just to make sure that I was aware that starting testosterone meant the end of my ability to have biological children. I feel I remember being aware of that 
anyway. And because I always understood uh, transition as a linear process that goes in one direction. And once it starts, it doesn't stop or pause or change. While I was going through that process, a lot of that understanding was at the same time being pushed back and resisted by areas of the trans community that I owe a lot to in terms of educating me about what it actually means to be trans and how it's not like a medical experience. It's just who you are. And so transition should work for you in whichever individual way it needs to. Um, and I now know tons of people who don't medically transition or who go on tea for a short period of time and then stop and you know perhaps they'd be spoken about by the media as like people who regret it or detransition and it's just mm-hmm. not that at all yeah so I didn't almost need to be told in a way that I would become infertile because like I remember when I was starting to go to the gender clinic and I people would talk about you need to kind of play by their rules there are certain boxes they're going to want to tick so you need to be careful for instance about saying that if you're a trans man you know it might work against you if you say that you're attracted to men because there was this outdated now understanding of one of the signs of being trans being that you were attracted to it so I would be attracted to women and that was a sign that I was trans which is sort of deeply lesbophobic and homophobic and problematic on so many levels and I I think literally when I was going to the clinic it was just as people as like doctors were starting to acknowledge oh like that's not relevant that that's not part of this so I sort of thought I need to show that I want to become a man in that like sense that these doctors perceive it which means that you know obviously uh, men don't get pregnant so I, that's not even a thing we're going to talk about you know um and then, and then it was more of a technicality of like on this consent form oh uh, you know if you start testosterone you will become infertile you need to consent to that which isn't true <laughs> no I mean, evidently <laughs> evidently as it yeah. turned out um, but i treat cis men I have to speak to patients, go, look, if, if you start on this, there is a chance you may become infertile. Mm-hmm. Infertile during the treatment and then infertile long term if you stop the treatment. It's not certain, but there is the chance of this. Now, with you being treated with testosterone, you kept your sort of original sort of physical structures. Mm-hmm. So your womb and your ovaries were retained because you potentially wanted a future that might include a, a child. Well, no, or not. that Sorry wasn't why oh, okay. um, I just hadn't didn't feel important it didn't feel okay. i mean i think a tiny fraction of trans men have lower surgery unlike um surgeries for trans women lower surgery for trans men is far from perfect you know it does work really well for some of those who elect to have it and i would never question anyone's decision on that front but they're very risky procedures that have a wide range of outcomes some of which people are feel Uh, unsatisfied with and also have massive complications from so I just hadn't got to the point in my life where I had sort of made any firm decisions on that front before discovering that what I'd been told about my fertility wasn't true and there used to be this other myth that you needed to have a hysterectomy um, before you got to five years on T otherwise you would have a much higher risk of cancer that's just not true like I don't know where that that came from we, people don't say it anymore doctors don't say it anymore there's no advice now to get a hysterectomy at a certain point but when i was starting this process that was the advice i think because um cross-sex hormones are known to affect sperm production 
there has been an assumption that they may also affect the fertility of trans men and transmasculine people. And now, not only is there no evidence to suggest that, but there is evidence to the contrary, finally at last, which is wonderful. It's coming out. So I think a clinic in Boston recently released a sort of preliminary paper um, to that effect. But yeah, when you, when you join these secret Facebook groups full of guys like me trying to have babies, you know, it's just pages and pages and pages of, I was on T for 10 years, I was on T for 15 years, I was on T for two years. And then lots of younger guys or people who are just discovering this for the first time every day. I've been on T for two years. Will I be infertile? And it's always just like, no, <laughs> you know, why are we still being told this? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Was there a sort of a bit of a light bulb moment at any point when you realized, fuck, I can have my own baby. I can carry my own baby and I'd, I think I'd like to do it. How did you come to that moment yeah um youtube again i was living in australia at the time and came across the vlog of a trans man in the states who announced his pregnancy and i i had subscribed to him before um as just a channel that i enjoyed watching so it came as a shock to me i didn't realize that's what was going to happen that was like a like what you know a very very shocking surprising (laughs) thing because i'd never heard about it in the UK. I mean, I had heard about Thomas Beatty, but I think I, I think that was before I transitioned. And I think I had sort of assumed that that was like some kind of scientific miracle. (laughs) It didn't feel like something that just anyone could do. Um, So that didn't really feel relevant. But when I started seeing just ordinary trans men doing it, and then so watching that video led me to find another one, I think search for another one. Um, And it was funny because Someone I, I also subscribed to on YouTube, who I used to watch a lot, had sort of disappeared for six months or so, and then reappeared and was like, hey, I, I'm actually pregnant. I have So, you know, it was a revelation, but it was a stressful revelation <laughs> because I immediately saw it for what it was for me, which was potentially a really simple way of having a kid. But like, would it just be such a taboo that it would be the kind of um, straw that broke the camel's back and actually lead to the rejection that I'd always feared and I'd never suffered from my family so I just felt immediately like oh my god this is this is really complicated so I just it started me on a kind of year-long process of arguing with myself (laughs) about whether I could do it yes I was wondering what held most priority in your mind when you were thinking about the concerns of um, carrying your baby um, between the kind of cognitive dissonance of being a man who is mm. pregnant or, or whether it was, yes, other people's um, perceptions of you, you know, walking around with a bump, etc., etc. Um, yeah, whether it was internal or external, actually, that was the most fearful thing. Um, definitely more fear of the external because I've always felt quite lucky, I suppose, that I have had this consistent sense of myself from as young as I can remember, which may sound weird to people who, you know, if I say, like, I didn't realise I was trans until I was 23 or something, 
you know, I think in popular culture, representations of trans people tend to put across the idea that it's transition that makes someone trans or it's like transition that makes you who you are, mm. that you switch from man to woman. And most trans people, I think, will now try to explain until they're blue in the face that, no, we are who we are. And transition is about lessening dysphoria. It's about being able to move around more comfortably and freely and safely in the world and about being who we are. So I just knew it was a pragmatic solution. That that's that always made sense to me. But yeah. at the same time, I couldn't do it alone. And I'm I'm terrified of other people's rejection, my family and, 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 and judgment and I'm like overly, overly terrified of that. I mean, I suppose growing up different, you become sensitive to that and... Um, I know what it's like to be bullied and ridiculed and humiliated just for trying to be yourself and to be feel confused by that. And so it's just sort of this kind of, God, can I, do I, am I strong enough to do that? Do I want to subject myself to that? Especially in a public sense, I shared my story, but I didn't want to have that forced upon me by being kind of doorstepped by a tabloid newspaper or, um, you know, I worked for The Guardian at the time, so I felt like I could be kind of targeted maybe for that reason. Yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> Very stressful. Because you do seem quite private. Mm. Yeah, and, and the way you, so in Seahorse, you are quite private. And yet at the same time, there's that duality of the fact that you're on camera. And you're sharing you know, your story from when you were young. You're saying little video snippets and all this. How did you square that? What was the sort of um, journey behind that? <laughs> I mean, I think you can tell in the film even that I'm pretty uncomfortable. And, I, and <laughs> it's funny because I read a review the other day a nice review I only read the nice ones but it but it was made as funny comment about like you know there's not much there's not much conflict <laughs> like yeah because that's I'm, I'm the most conflict diverse <laughs> person so you know I was quite private and, and hidden away when I was pregnant and I can understand that for somebody watching the film that must be frustrating because you're sort of thinking well it's not much of a film if he's just going to sit in his bedroom for nine months but yeah so I, the film came from me being a journalist and me you know, I've never spoken to a trans person, either a friend or an acquaintance, or heard about a trans person talking about an experience with the media that's been positive. <laughs> like, that's probably changed more recently, actually, but that's that's because I think more trans people are able to tell their own stories and produce their own stuff and, and sort of climb up the ladder a little bit and, and be in positions of power when it comes to that sort of thing. But I was just sick to the back teeth of having my friends and myself even being betrayed by producers and manipulated and exploited and having... You know, I heard about one guy when he was pregnant um letting a camera person come in to film the birth because um he thought it was going to be used for a film but either way he would have access to that footage and then the not only did the film not transpire but he doesn't have that footage either that, that footage was sort of taken away from him and he he's never going to have it so it's just such awful things and i think we as trans people we like we do have this sense that you know if people could just understand then we'd we'd be left to live in peace and we'd and we'd be safe so there's this real need and desire to share and, and be open just in a way that doesn't end up hurting us. So I wanted to show that it was possible to do that, to tell a story that I consented to and that didn't hurt me and that I could have a role in and that it wouldn't make it a less powerful story. In fact, it would make it more powerful and it it would do that job of like helping people understand us uh, rather than making us seem even more other and bizarre. <laughs> so it felt, it was like a professional, it felt like my vocation, I suppose, in the most literal sense. Do, do you mind if I just ask about the experience of getting pregnant in your pregnancy and mm. how it felt to um, be a trans gay man mm. being pregnant or, or carrying, a, carrying a baby? I don't know what terms you prefer because in the film initially you say carrying a baby, but I... I, I yeah, I mean the language is 
understandably still very gendered so i think i use different language depending on who i'm with and the context i i just it's so hard to answer that question because it's all i know i know i know people talk about you know I've heard people say to me like what's it like to go through this experience that is is like the most female experience there there is or you know it's this sort of essential female experience and i just think that language is so problematic and um I don't like the idea of biological essentialism. I don't think it's very helpful. I think it's offensive to particularly women who don't have children and who don't identify with the idea that that is what makes them a woman. <laughs> and it's offensive to, to women who can't have biological children and who become mothers in all sorts of different ways. So I just think... I understand where that question comes from, and I'm not saying that's not that's not the question you asked, obviously, but... I was me pregnant, so I was a man who was pregnant. So what made it difficult was that the world was absolutely adamant that only women get pregnant. <laughs> um, and <laughs> again, I understand that, but it was wonderful when I would I met my midwife, my community midwife, and she was kind of an old family friend. So she knew me and knew my parents and had never met anyone like me before. You know, never cared for a pregnant trans man before, but just got that it wasn't complicated just got that she needed to look after me and not not an idea of who I should be um so actually like that's really lovely because it's this idea that you don't need lots of specialist training you know we don't need midwives and um we don't need to spend loads of money and we don't need to make it we don't need to use inclusive language or like the broadest language 100% of the time you just need to care for the individual in front of you I've been talking to midwives in Brighton this pair of amazing queer midwives who have single-handedly created an entirely inclusive set of paperwork and a language guide all for trans and non-binary people going through pregnancy and they always use the word additive it's about additive resources not it's not about changing the resources that exist wholesale you know obviously the vast majority of the time women have children are pregnant and give birth but we can add on this set of resources in an affordable, sensible way that keeps everyone safe. Because, you know, there are trans men who have lost their babies and um, had their own lives put at risk because of ignorance in healthcare settings. And that is just not acceptable. So the reason I asked the question was just, uh, I remember the film you described it a few times as uh, a man doing something really odd mm. and a fucking alien and a total <laughs> loss of myself. And yeah. so it was just you know, fascinating to realise that you had spent so long on a journey to try and sort of um, uh, to actualise yourself. And then you were putting that on hold. Yeah. And then uh, to allow yourself to achieve something longer term. Yeah. And, and relying on this idea that a year seems like a huge amount of time when you're in it. And then you look back on it and it's like a blink of an eye. And that is definitely how it feels to me now. And again, I would say all those feelings I was expressing really... I think it was the lack of testosterone. It was the dysphoria rather than the pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Pregnancy was healthy and uncomplicated and reassuring in a way because it reminded me why on earth I was putting myself through the whole experience. So when I could feel my baby kicking and, you know, see my bump, it was it was grounding and it was comforting. And it was it was uncomfortable in public. But, you know, yeah, I, I sort of think to myself, if I could, and this isn't safe and this is no one should do this. But if, if you if I could be on testosterone and be pregnant, then it just wouldn't have been anywhere near as difficult. And the birth itself was, I mean, extraordinarily moving, I have to say. And you were so controlled and 
fucking brave and amazing I found it very inspiring to see I was like yes this is possible it's possible to have I I, I hear a lot of negative birth stories all around me all the time and it was so refreshing to see a really positive Mm. one um, I mean, am I right in, in saying that, in how I received mm. it? it? it Was it a, a very positive experience? It really was, but I also feel, and I'm not just saying this to sound humble, but I I, I can't take credit for that because it, I have no idea why it happened that way. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure, uh, sure. <laughs> I also had loads of negative stories told to me and lots of people sort of saying, you know, whatever your plan is, just don't hold on to it too tightly because who knows what will happen. And I, I actually found that I'm like the kind of person that just wants as much information as possible. The more information, the better. Yes. I feel much calmer the more I know. So knowing that it might all go out the window definitely helped me relax and just go with the flow. And I think that in turn helped me have a positive experience. Um, and obviously there's just some, an amount of luck. And again, it's your body and having my mum present is always very calming for me so it's very lucky on that front and I had I've got friends in deal a couple of people who are one's a doula and one's training to be a doula who I had long conversations with so I understood about the different hormones getting released at different points and also I used the positive birth company's hypno birthing playlist just a free really simple playlist on YouTube didn't pay loads of money to have a hypno birthing course or anything like that so I couldn't afford it and then I did that one breathing technique just like from the first contraction to basically my kid being born, I just did the same breathing technique a million times. And I was just like along for the ride. I just, yeah, God knows. It's amazing. It's fucking amazing. I think it's like the ultimate human experience, bar none. So, yeah. Yeah. And are you loving being a dad at the moment? I am, yeah. It's, um, you know, it's hard. It's really hard uh, at times. But, yeah, it definitely feels like... I was right in my suspicion that it was something that I was sort of meant to do and something I would really enjoy and find satisfying. And he's great company. I love spending time with him. I don't feel bored. I don't, I really did not want to go back to work, <laughs> you know, when my parental leave ended. Freddie's incredibly moving documentary, Seahorse, is available to watch at seahorsefilm.com. His podcast, Pride and Joy, is available on BBC Sounds and his first children's book will be released next year by a major publishing house. Thank you for listening to The Pleasure Podcast. If you enjoy this, do share, review and subscribe on iTunes. It really does help other people find us and helps to give the series a boost. Please do give us five stars. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. Gilad Vysotsky for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex, and of course, pleasure. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, 
or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>